Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Paul. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human. Happy New Year to all our listeners. We hope you have a fulfilling and healthy 2022. Thank you all so much for tuning in every week, and we hope to continue to bring you new content that keeps your surgical minds and hearts inspired and educated to keep doing all the work that you do. We are very excited this week to bring you this episode on Black Surgeons in North America. This is an initiative led by Dr. Don Nakayama, who is a pediatric surgeon in North Carolina and was sponsored by the American College of Surgeons, and it is now available as a book and also as a PDF form. And this book is really an amazing collection of the amazing contributions of black surgeons across North America. Specifically for this episode, we were lucky enough to sit down again with Dr. Vivian McAllister, who, as listeners will know, is a longtime friend of the podcast, to tell us about the contributions specifically of black Canadian surgeons. We were also lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Nakayama himself, as well as Dr. Kathy Slaney, who is a sociologist whose whose work is focused on her great-grandfather, Dr. Anderson Abbott, who is one of the surgeons profiled in the book. Last but not at all least, we were joined by Shannon Price, who is the curator of the Buxton National Historic Site and Museum, and she shared her insights specifically around Buxton and what a unique community that was. This episode was really such a fascinating foray into the untold stories of the contributions of black surgeons in our country. We were both really inspired by our guests' thoughts about how we can perhaps learn from this history to help us heal the ongoing racial wounds that exist within our culture and in our society. As always, we would love to hear your thoughts by email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or on Twitter at CanJSurge. So Vivian McAllister is my name. I'm um, a surgeon at University Hospital in London, Ontario, and uh, on faculty at the University of Western Ontario. And in our district, uh, we uh, have the great honour in our history of being uh, the area where there were several terminuses for the Underground Railroad. Um, And I've known about this, of course, all of my time here. Uh, but not particularly an expert in it. Uh, However, my interest is really in the history of surgery. And when Dr. Nakayama came and asked me, would I write a a small uh, biography for this book on Anderson Abbott, uh, I realized two things. One, while I could give the perspective of uh, a surgeon in the past, I really couldn't give the perspective of growing up uh, as a, a black man in Canada. And uh, I was very fortunate to have uh, an opportunity to build a team so that we could look at that biography. But in doing so, we really found a far, a very rich history of black surgery, of black surgeons and surgery in in Canada, and particularly in this district. It's it's such an amazing endeavor. Don, I was wondering if if you could talk to us a little bit about your background and in particular, what led you to edit uh, your book, Black Surgeons and Surgery in America? Yeah, I think it's a, it, 
I'm a, a professor of surgery and pediatric surgery at the University of North Carolina. And I came to appreciation of history relatively late in my career, you know, when establishes a practice and then establishes an academic identity and only relatively later when it, uh, when, when one has more time, you, know, you develop an interest in history and history of surgery is such a rich field. Um, I was interested, especially in, in, in the history of black Americans and, and, and surgeons. And I knew that there was a, uh, uh, small literature out there about, about those topics. And I thought it'd be nice to have a collection of stories that we could give to inspire surgeons of all races, but especially black medical students and residents. And I pitched it to uh, Patricia, Patricia, Patricia Turner, who is the, uh, who at the time was the director of member services. Now she's the executive director of the American College of Surgeons as to whether we can do that. And she says, good idea. And so what I had kind of thought, thought was being a pamphlet of, a collection of stories and, and articles turned out to be much more. And it was an opportunity to, to really kind of flesh it out. And in order to give the proper background, you had to have all the, all the backstories of it. And it turned out to be the history of the United States, right? The history of Blacks in the United States, which is the history of the United States from the very first slaves that came aboard with uh, uh, Jamestown Colony in 1619 and 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 it, it turned out that black surgery kind of nearly entirely spans that era and part of that in order to get more stories i needed stories about black canadians because it became immediately obvious that pivotal figures were canadians or were educated in canada including anderson abbott and 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 Alexander Augusta, who were both active just before the Civil War and during and after the Civil War as uh, prominent uh, surgeons of any race, but especially in Black, black surgical history. And, and I reached out to Vivian because I knew that he was uh, a historian and, and, and interested in such things. And I said, would you write a chapter? And as he indicated, you know, once you start digging, you, you, you find out so much more about the story, the actual story. And it turns out that the story about black surgeons in Canada turned out to be one of the most, one of the foundational chapters of the collection. It, it's second in the collection. And it really sets the stage because it really, uh, you know, Canada was a refuge, right? Canada was a terminus of the ground underground railroad in Western Ontario. And, and, and there's this remarkable school called the Buxton school that I'm sure we'll be hearing about. That was really the cradle of, of many of the early, surgeons and who gained prominence in America. So that's one thread that turned out to be a major important thread in the book. And, uh, and, and, and we're happy that it's there because it wouldn't be complete without it. Well, I think we're all thrilled and, and we'll be even more thrilled across the country as, as Canadian surgeons learn more and more about this history. It's, uh, it's an incredible endeavor and it's amazing that you've accomplished this, this book. Shannon, I wonder if we uh, um, pop over to you, if you could provide our listeners with a bit of background in terms of uh, uh, your career as well as how you got involved. 
Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Shannon Prince. I'm the curator of the Buxton National Historic Site Museum in North Buxton, Ontario. And I'm also a sixth generation descendant um, from this settlement. So basically, I grew up uh, living this history on a daily basis. But it wasn't until many years later that I really, uh, truly appreciated it and um, knew more about it. Um, I guess living here, it was always, you know, assumed uh, that everybody knew the history. And I guess we did, and, and my part was just a, a snippet, um, but it wasn't as big as um, I, I could have been during, the, during that time, you know, when you listen. And I regret not listening to my grandparents more about telling me the different stories like I would hear the stories and I would listen semi and then after you know reconnecting with the family and then they would have uh, you know one part of the story and I would have another part so it was really really great and one of the most um, and I think my husband Brian who has always been in, into history um, and has written books and has done research and research upon research <laughs> just about every person within the settlement he was the one that really wrote not wrote me but really um, uh, uh, got me into it because he would write stories about some of the women that made it to Buxton and he asked me to do to tell stories about them so he would have like a Cole's notes version and then I would you know go back and I wanted to research more about that this person and I really got into character so it was my way of sharing bringing that history to life and eventually I became the curator here at the museum in 1999 and it's been the most rewarding job um, as as aside from being a wife and mother etc <laughs> but I guess because on a daily basis there are either people calling or um, coming through those doors. It seems like everybody has a piece of this incredible story and journey that these freedom seekers had. And it just enriches, you know, my life. And I hope I help, I help to enrich theirs by what we have. Um, so it has been very, very gratifying. Is that a good Cole's Notes version to start? <laughs> that's, that's absolutely wonderful. You, you know, my, my only other question up front would be maybe for some of our international uh, audience who may not know Buxton or maybe even some Canadians who don't. Can you can you briefly frame um, what you're referring to specifically, not only in terms of the museum, but beyond? The Buxton settlement, it was one of those last stops on the Underground Railroad that Vivian was um, talking about earlier. And we are located... Um, 15 to 20 minutes southwest of Chatham, Ontario, but pro approximately an hour uh, from Detroit and three hours um, from Toronto, uh, which are probably the largest entry points, I would think, um, into, into Canada um, and the Niagara area, a little over three and a half from Niagara. Uh, but we were one of those last stops on the Underground Railroad, like so many other places, some down in Windsor, um, you know, London, Toronto, uh, outside of Toronto, Owen Sound, Niagara on the Lake. But the really interesting aspect with regards to our settlement was the fact that it was 9,000 acres and it was it was the largest out of all the settlements, but it was also classified as the most successful out of all those settlements. Um, and because there was quite a bit of opposition in the outlying area uh, with basically Blacks coming into this 
into the, the this mostly white pop population, um, Reverend King, the founder of our settlement, put a lot of rules in place uh, because he firmly believed that if Blacks are given those same opportunities as whites, they could become self-sufficient and self-sustaining. So for example, the land could only be purchased by Blacks. Your homes had to be a certain size. Um, there was no alcohol, businesses were black owned and operated, uh, and you had 10 years to pay your land off. But it was, but what was really interesting was the education that was being taught that really, that whites were viewing uh, blacks through a whole different lens when they realized the quality of education that was being taught here in the settlement. Uh, that's absolutely remarkable. K Kathy, uh, as a contributor uh, to this project as well, I'm curious what your background is and how you got involved. Well, it was uh, actually a big surprise to uh, me and my family <laughs> because we knew all about him, but we didn't know he was Black. So Anderson Abbott was... Uh, uh, sort of our ent my entry into the entire field. And, um, and once uh, Dan Hill actually revealed that to us, um, it started a whole sequence of investigation. But it took a while because it was, you know, it was so far removed, we weren't even really that involved. I mean, it was interesting. It was like, oh, wow, didn't know that. That was amazing. And years kind of went by and finally, I trundled on down to the Toronto Reference Library and found stacks and stacks of papers and, and volumes of, of notes. And I thought, oh, who knew, who knew this was here? So I thought, oh, well, no one's going to read this because it was all handwritten. And so um, maybe I'll just transcribe them and see what, what that reveals. Well, it took months. And, uh, <clears throat> and eventually I realized still nobody was really going to read it like that. So I kind of had to put it into um, a, the perspective of where he was coming from and describe what was going on <clears throat> that, that drew him, uh, Anderson Abbott to write like that. But in the process, uh, of course, we had to dig into the family genealogy and, <clears throat> and found uh, lots of really interesting things. And that drew me into, I ended up having to get a PhD in this just so I could figure out how to say it and <laughs> qualify some of it. But, you know, in my case, in my side of the family, we didn't live as Black. So I, it's, it's really from a very different perspective. Now, we have since discovered a huge range of uh, <clears throat> relatives and cousins, both here and over the border. That's an amazing story. Shannon, I wonder if we can come back to you and, and, and then you could expand on the importance of, of the Buxton Mission School in southwestern Ontario and particularly the evolution of, of Black education from, from that standpoint. What, what sort of role did it play in that story? It was it was it was really amazing um, because because blacks were denied one in the United States. This was something that they really embraced. And because Reverend King, he valued education. So when he founded this settlement, it was based on the land and education, building schools and building churches. And um, so when he built his, you know, um, well, when he took his former enslaved people to the district or common school, the doors were locked. So he built one on his own school, on his own farm and invited anyone to come. You want a good education? Come to my school. 
So ironically, when he opened it, there were 14 blacks and two whites that went to that school. But within a year, there were more white children going to Reverend King's school because of the quality of education that was being taught. So he was teaching your basics. It was called a classical education, everything plus Greek, Latin and a Christian based education. So that's where um, uh, Anderson Abbott received his education. So when he finished here, he went to Knox and Trinity Colleges in Toronto, um, as, so, as like so many others. So you have um, uh, John, uh, James Rapier, who was um, educated in Buxton, became the first Black teacher at the school that's still standing beside the museum, which was built in 1861. He was um, became the first congressman in the state of Alabama. Um, you have the first congressman, um, I mean, the uh, first speaker of the state legislature in Mississippi. You know, you have principals of university and high school, editors of race, race relation newspaper. They were educated in Buxton because of this high quality education that was being taught. So, and I think that was one thing that gravitated people to this area, not only because of the opportunities, you know, because of the land and um, even though the rules, some felt were arbitrary. It was the education that really prompted them um, to seek that education. Uh, and then when, you know, the Civil War broke out, there were 70 men who left here to go back and fight um, in the Civil War. But after the war was over, many of those well-educated, uh, well-established people, they left here and went back to the United States to help with that reconstruction because of what they had obtained here uh, in Buxton. Oh, that's fascinating. Vivian, popping back to you, I, I want to ask you a, a two-part question that Amir and I were, were wondering. The, the first is that you wrote a really neat uh, piece for the American College of Surgeons uh, uh, history community about the inaugural Shaw, Lincoln's inauguration and assassination. How does that fit into this story is for first question. And the second question, the correlating one is the hospital for blacks in Washington during the civil war was known as the contraband hospital. And I'm curious, uh, you know, how that name came about, how important was it really? And, and how does it link up again with, with what we're talking about today in Canada? I, the reason I wrote the piece was actually the trouble uh, in the U S at the inauguration, the confirmation for uh, Joe Biden and uh, the, troubles that he was going to have with his inauguration. And I said it echoed the inauguration troubles for Abraham Lincoln. And one of the things that happened at that time is Mrs. Lincoln gave Abraham Lincoln a shawl uh, for the trip from Ohio down to Washington. And he was making a long trip speaking as he went. And there were several plans to assassinate him along the way. And uh, one of the ruses that he used to get through the city of Baltimore to change train stations was to cover himself with the shawl and pretend to be an invalid. And it was the Pinkerton uh, Detective Agency and the first female detective in the Pinkertons who assisted him in this, she pretended to be his sister. And they wheeled him in a chair at, across to the other train station and he made it to the inauguration. Well, as we all know the history, he was, was assassinated soon after his second inauguration. And at that uh, terrible time, Mrs. Lincoln was present when he was shot. Uh, she was actually extracted from the scene because she was so distraught 
and they prevented her from staying with her husband while he was lay dying. Uh, Anderson Abbott was a black surgeon in Washington at that time and a friend of uh, Mrs. Lincoln's uh, confidant, uh, Kirkley. And she asked Anderson to come with her to go and see Mrs. Lincoln and comfort her. Now, we don't know for sure if Anderson Abbott was present when Lincoln died. I think he was most likely with Mrs. Lincoln and he was comforting her. The, the actual documented history is a little bit uncertain. What we do know for certain though, is that after the assassination, Mrs. Lincoln uh, was giving away mementos uh, of her husband and she sent the shawl to Toronto to Anderson Abbott where he had returned. And in it, she said, this is in memory of my husband, who was your very good friend, something like that. And uh, Kathy, if, you're, if you'd remind me, I think it was one of your uh, uncles, grand uncles, who gave the shawl to a history museum in the US and it is currently uh, in the US there. Yes, yeah, yeah, and it, it, uh... It was um, a, a friendship that he had acquired, uh, interestingly enough, um, with his mentor, uh, Dr. Augusta. Yes. And his wife, Mary Augusta, um, was good friends with Elizabeth Keckley. So I think that's where the connection was. And he had a foot in the door there. But um, uh, yeah, he was he was very pleased with the, uh, the shawl. It was an honor to have it. And it, it is with the Wisconsin Historical Society now. And at one point we did a, <clears throat> we had a play, a, a play, a musical play. Um, and Tom Kneebone and Dinah Christie uh, did a, a, a wonderful little play called Doc Ruffin. And uh, we had, had a, a, we had the textile museum send the, the shawl up for display. We had the reenactment group come and do a display and and uh, it was a wonderful concert uh, over a hundred cousins from the states came uh, as well we visited all of the the cemetery uh, plots and Buxton and and just just kind of shared the whole history um, because we all had a different idea and different stories so we put put it all together um, but the shawl was certainly a big honor and uh, it's not actually a shawl. It's it's actually quite a large <laughs> blanket. Yeah, but it's in good good shape still. I speculated why um, Mary Lincoln chose that as the memento to give to Anderson Abbott uh, because he wasn't connected to the shawl before that, and uh, I think it's because it's a hand's tooth saw shawl which has little stripes of black and white, right. and. Uh, she knew that that was symbolic, that you need both black and white to make this uh, thing complete. And that was the message. I think so. The, the um, um, contraband hospital uh, comes from a different uh, uh, story. Uh, early in the Civil War, uh, some slaves moved across the lines and they were still in states where slavery was permitted. So the owners would go to the Union Army and demand the slaves back. And fortunately, one of the um, uh, 
uh, generals in a, in, a, in a fort came up with the plan that if you consider slaves property and we consider them uh, your property being used in the war, we're confiscating it as contraband property. So slaves were given a refuge if they could cross to union lines on the basis that they were contraband property. And this was before emancipation. So the, the refugees who congregated in Washington uh, were placed in an army camp and it became known as the contraband camp. Uh, what I think was fascinating about it is that they actually really organized themselves extremely well there. Uh, and they did that on their own, uh, including a hospital to um, see to these large number of refugees. Uh, and Anderson, Augusta was the first director of the hospital. Anderson Abbott became a director of the hospital. And I think in all four Canadian trained surgeons were part of that hospital. And I believe it had an important role because although it was a hospital for black people, um, it was on the route that Abraham Lincoln took every day in summer, back and forth as he, as he rode from the White House or to the White House from his summer cottage, because it was very hot in, in Washington in those days. And they had a, a cottage in a cooler place, but he drove past the contraband camp every day. And he visited the hospital on one occasion. And there is a picture of, of them uh, standing, uh, singing, or, or doing something like making some sort of a presentation uh, there. And uh, later it became known that uh, the, the people who were in the hospital were from Buxton and they sent a mission up to Buxton to see how is that settlement working? Because there were white people who believed that black slaves in what you might call benign slavery were in a better off position than uh, where they had come from in Africa. And it, it was a terrible thesis, but a lot of people believed it. Uh, and this mission to Buxton came back and reported to Congress that they were a thriving community that had organized themselves. Reverend King's uh, motto was a fair, fair ground and no favor. What he wanted was just the opportunity. Nobody got any favors to do what they did. So in Buxton, the settlement proved that uh, emancipation, uh, which had occurred, uh, should be followed by full citizenship. And that's what's known as the 14th Amendment. And it came out of, I think, all of those actions, the Contraband Hospital and the Buxton Mission School. They played important roles in it. Can I just add to that, Vivian? If yes, you don't mind, please. you were talking yes, to Samuel, Samuel Gridley Howe from Boston. He was yes. commissioned in 1864. And this is one of my favorite. Well, this is the quote that he made. Buxton is certainly a very interesting place. 20 years ago, most of them were slaves who own nothing, not even their children. Now they have their wives and their children about them. They have the great essentials for human happiness, something to love, something to do and something to hope for. That's absolutely perfect. You know, Kathy, not, not to perseverate on Anderson Abbott, um, you know, as such a central important figure, but as, as you and Vivian have both said, he returned following the, the, or from the Civil War. It's important, I think, to, to, to just state to all of our listeners that he had a number of leadership positions 
as the chief of a number of hospitals, oh, yes. not only, yeah, not only Toronto General Hospital, of course. I'm, I'm curious if you could just outline that a little bit in, in terms of his, his role and his leadership talents, as well as maybe some of the honors that, that he, you know, eventually has received in terms of recognition uh, in downtown Toronto. Well, he certainly, he combined his uh, quest for <clears throat> social justice and equality with his medical practice. And he, that fused together in uh, Chatham when he became the first black coroner of Kent County. And uh, although he practiced medicine, he was also involved in every social aspect of the school board, uh, the medical association, mechanics institute or library. Um, he was very much involved in the educational institutions there, the <clears throat> Nasri Institution and others. Uh, making sure that all of the black population had an opportunity to get an education. From there, he moved to Dundas and had another practice, again, very socially involved. <clears throat> and at one point, he was also chief of staff at the Toronto General Hospital uh, as he replaced, um, I forget the doctor's name, uh, a, a, a famous doctor there so that uh, and it's important to know that, you know, being chief of, of hospital, chief surgeon or superintendent, it involved every aspect of running a hospital from, from supplies and ordering, training, um, any inpatients as well as outpatients and emergency departments. It was all new and it and it wasn't, there were not a lot of people assigned to different jobs. So the head of the hospital had his finger on everything as he did at the contraband or Friedman's hospital. So he was well practiced with that. And he also was very, very interested in germ theory. Uh, so he followed Florence Nightingale and, and uh, all the work that she had uh, done. And, and his interest was in preventing disease. So um, it was new, it wasn't just treating what, what appeared, it was trying to uh, promote hygiene and public health. And then from there, he went on to, um, to Provident Hospital and established a nursing program for black nurses. <clears throat> because at the time, of course, uh, they were not welcome in the uh, educational institutions and so with segregation, you, the, the hospitals were separate. So the black uh, patients uh, were, not, were not necessarily able to acquire white physicians or nurses. And so black, separate uh, programs had to be created. And that would lead to the, the development of the situation where Anderson's son, Wilson, who was a doctor uh, and trained in the States, fairly light skinned and uh, also able to pass as white, married a white woman named, I might add, Florence Nightingale, complicating <laughs> ladies time. <laughs> who knew? But anyways. Um, wow. So he, uh, he became chief of Henroten Hospital, which is a, a very prominent hospital 
there. And, and surprising, it shocked all of the other cousins, the Black cousins as well, that he was able to do that. Don, coming back to you, you know, with your with your overall command of, of this history and, and this domain, uh, uh, Amir and I are curious if there's any particular favorites, uh, either individuals or anecdotes among some of the Black surgeons associated with Canada that, that come to mind for you? Yeah, it's it's incredibly rich. <laughs> Every story, and and just just hearing these stories just makes me a little irritated. That they're holding back on, <laughs> on a lot of the information that should have made the book. But uh, in truth, you know, there are two figures really that that stand out to me. One is John Rapier Jr. and and his family is very famous because they're they're the Rapier Thomas family, and the 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 mother actually had one line that was black, and the other line that was white and the, and, the, and the white father of that line was uh, James Catron, who was the uh, Supreme Court Justice. And he voted with a seven to two majority on the Dred Scott decision, uh, Dred, Dred Scott decision, which is the, you know, which is the thing that, that justified segregation for, for, for decades afterwards. And so that was, that's, that's, that's one of the things that's, that's, tremendously interesting the other one is a guy named martin delaney and and delaney is had a, had a connection to to uh, uh canada because he practiced there and he practiced there before the war but before that he, the way that he was educated was he was uh, he was uh, uh, apprenticed to abolitionist uh, physicians in pittsburgh when he where he grew up and he came in the wing of one of the very influential figures in in American history, and that's Frederick Douglass, and and he was partners with Frederick Douglass in one of his one of his uh, early pu- uh, first publications, the North Star, and and they had a falling out, but they were they were intellectual rivals, and at one point, Martin Delaney was his equal, and and during the time that he was trying to uh, establish himself, he tried to get into Harvard Medical School, and he actually got in into the first uh, medical school, school class in 1850. And they lasted two months before there was such an uproar that that they were uh, they were dismissed, just summarily dismissed. And he and two others were were were, were supposed to be pioneering that the the the, the black uh, medical students and black med- medical education at Harvard, but that just didn't work out because there was uniform opposition from from names that one would know and recognize, like Oliver Wendell Holmes was dean during that time. And Henry Bigelow was professor of surgery, and all, there were, you know, it's just, it's, it's just, it's just a fact. That's what happened. He was so disillusioned that he became the first black nationalist. He he espoused that there's no way that that blacks would ever get an equal footing in American society. Frederick Douglass, on the other hand, that's what he aspired to, and he he said just said you know, Douglass said just give us a chance. We can do it. We can build our own communities and and make it in, in American society. Well, Martin Delaney was a person who said, no, there's no way. And he was the one who actually went and, and tried to establish a settlement in Nigeria and uh, actually uh, found a, uh, a, a national polity of, of, black, of, of black Americans or black, uh, black people. And if it wasn't for it wasn't for the Civil War, you know who knows what would happen. But he actually came back and and joined the Union cause. Well, Delaney later 
became uh, became part of the both the Republican and Democrat Party. He was he was just he was he didn't know after the war what to do with himself, and he gradually kind of just dwindled away. But during that time, he's he was the forerunner to Black Power, uh, uh, the Black Panthers, the uh, Black Lives Matter. All these can trace their their roots all the way back to Martin Delaney. So. It's a incredible political history that uh, that is uh, both informs and is revealing, and uh, you can't get away from it. <laughs> That's incredible, Sh- Shannon. I'm, I'm curious if you could comment on where the story of these pioneering black surgeons fits within the larger black history in Canada. Um, a lot of people in in Canadian history are not aware that there was even slavery here in Canada, which was viewed as the land of freedom. Um, slavery existed, you know, as way back as 1500s. Um, so um, for that, and I guess, I think that the surgeon aspect, um, Eddie, and I guess it all, all the education for blacks, um, not only surgeons, but, um, uh, everyone, and I guess I say that from my little community of Buxton perspective, uh, because because of that denial in the South, and now coming up here again, because blacks were viewed as uh, you know could not do anything; they were you know shunned, um, uh, and because of the discrimination that they faced here in Canada as well, um, they were missing a lot of opportunities. So to gain that education, whether you eventually, you know, to become a surgeon, um, a doctor, a teacher, um, that was monumental, um, you know, for those accomplishments during that time period. And I think because of those of us that have, have um, that are descended or even have parts of our history, both in the United States and Canada, have witnessed so many um, atrocities that and injustices that we have faced as Blacks and to obtain that further education component. Uh, it's something they thrive for. So I think being part of the Canadian um, uh, complexion, the Canadian mosaic. I think it's wonderful. And it's just, you know, within the last several, I don't know how many years I want to say, but for Canadians to realize the significance and the contributions um, that Blacks have made into shaping the Canadian um, history, it's wonderful. So I think, um, you know, I think I'm, <laughs> I don't know if I've answered your question or not, but I think it's, it, you know, the education component in itself, it's something that uh, we are all blessed um, to, to have, I think. Vivian, I, I wanted to sort of close out with, with you before um, everyone makes a final comment and ask you if you're aware, um, given your, your mastery of, of Canadian history, if if there's more recent examples of pioneering black surgeons in Canada that come to mind for you. Yes, we did get stuck at the, at the kind of civil war period uh, in our discussion today, but the, the um, story is um, continuous from that time. And the role played by the University of Toronto, I think is worth mentioning. It was one of the few universities that encouraged uh, at least some black students and uh, if you go all the way up to the 1950s, um, 
they had maybe the first surgeons in the what I think is of as the modern era who are black. One is a man called Douglas Salmon. And fascinatingly, when he was a, a, a student, a, a high school student, he was being rooted down the uh, direction of becoming, um, you know, technical, uh, of working with his hands. But he went to a uh, music, he was good at music, and he was at the conservatory, and his music teacher said, that's rubbish, you shouldn't be doing that, you should be uh, looking for a full education. He had to go to night school, and he eventually uh, got into a class in which there were three other black students uh, in the University of Toronto and graduated, and he became the uh, um, director of surgery at uh, the Scarborough Hospital. Um, so, I mean, the story continued there. Interestingly, he graduated from the University of Toronto, but couldn't get a residency position. So we weren't free of uh, discrimination in those days here. What we tended to discriminate was about what jobs people did afterwards. And um, Jewish people and black people had a hard time getting residency positions in Toronto for a while. And he went back across the border to Detroit where he did his, Salmon did his residency and came back to Canada as a fully fledged surgeon. <clears throat> so if you look at a pattern for these stories that I think Don has collected, they are the pattern of very determined people who used their, often their privilege from wealth that their parents had accumulated to and then their ability to bypass uh, jurisdictional barriers. They would move from one jurisdiction to the other to achieve their goals. And in doing so, they felt they could not only just be a surgeon, they had to be a political leader as well, like Martin Delaney, uh, leaving, leaving a, um, a, a thing, you know, a, an inheritance behind, a legacy behind for those who followed. And I'll just finish with one quick thing, you know, I always ask myself, well, what happened to the University of Western Ontario here? Because uh, those of you who know your geography well, Shannon is west of me, and Cathy with, uh, up at the University of Toronto is east of me. So a lot of these people bypassed us. And uh, two things are, were the answer. One was the medical school at the time of the Civil War didn't exist. It, it came into, into being about 15 years later. And um, there, but still, we still had an underrepresentation of uh, black people in our in our uh, student body and certainly on faculty. So I've made an effort to find out, like, when did black uh, students graduate from the University of Western Ontario? And we don't celebrate it at all. It took a, quite a bit. I had to go through just looking at class photos and saying, oh, there's one, and trying to find out who he was. And I found a name, uh, Lewis Milburn, who graduated in 1957, became an aviation medicine specialist and was actually the assistant director of aerospace medicine at NASA. So, you know, he's somebody who should have been recognized regardless of the color of his skin, but to achieve it as a black man was also remarkable in NASA at that time. Uh, we have another one, Stephen Blizzard, who graduated about five years later and he was a member of the Royal Canadian Air Force. And he was at the same time a jet fighter pilot and a uh, flight surgeon. I don't think, I think it's almost unique in uh, the history of um, 
the RCAF to have, because you could switch from being a physician to being a pilot, but not both at the same time. But he somehow managed to finagle it, that he was actually both a flight surgeon and a, a fighter pilot. Anyway, so there are so many examples, Chad, that I think we should be looking into this in all our schools and, uh, you know, getting this history and celebrating it because it's definitely there. In closing, I'd like to ask all of you to leave our listeners with some final thoughts about um, the work that you've done and perhaps even a way forward, whether that's uh, to th in terms of thinking about how to honor these black surgeons or black physicians and, and black pioneers in our Canadian history or, or any other thoughts that you might have from, from doing the work that you've done. The federal government, the, for the last several years during Black History Month, they will always seek out um, various to honor different um, Black institutions or organizations. Um, so we um, really like to bring that to their attention again for some of these not so well known uh, people. Um, I know, uh, you know, because there are so many greats. Um, and I'm thinking of a lady right now. Her name is Hattie Rue Hatchett. Um, she was uh, escaped slavery in Alabama, made it up here to Buxton, but she became. Um, you know, she wrote the official marching song for the World War One soldiers that nobody is familiar with. So there's so many people that are in everyone's backyard that we need to really um, salute and say thank you for your contribution. So we so here at the museum, we are doing that continually uh, when groups come through, when people come through, and when we are speaking to uh, our government officials on who needs to be recognized, we bring that to their attention. Uh, not only, you know, um, federally, provincially, municipally, uh, and locally, because I think everyone throughout uh, Canadian history have significant people that are in their own backyards, if you will, that need to be uh, recognized for their contributions. And they are there. We just need to identify. So I think that's one, one great pleasure and honor that we have at the museum, bringing everyone's stories to life and, um, and to be well, to, to be more well known. It's really a, a great message and, and the work that you're doing with the museum is fantastic. Kathy, if I could turn to you, what are some final thoughts that you have from having done this work and do you have any thoughts about a way forward? I agree with Shannon completely. I think it's a matter of, of bringing the stories to light and doing that in a way that people can actually relate to them. Um, it's one thing to hear a story about somebody, but you're not at all like them or you don't have that experience. But to bring it down to earth and and try and, and engage people in a way that, that they can relate and they go, yeah, that happened to me or that's how I felt or whether it was 100 years ago or whether it was yesterday. Um, and also bringing it down to the different levels. You know, there these stories can be turned into children's stories, you know, so that they they actually hear the message and it's not something that, that they learn in school in a history lesson, because I can hardly remember any history lessons. Um, but, but the things that remain with you um, are things that mean something to you personally. So uh, I would say, yes, let's bring, and, and there's so many stories we haven't heard. 
because people, oh, it's just me. It's just, you know, my grandmother or whatever. But no, they're really good stories that need to be heard. And Buxton's a good place to do it, but that's one place and it could really be everywhere. Should also note that these were all men who were educated and became successful and that there were a lot of women still uh, receiving education and, and potentially being able to contribute great things. Um, one of Anderson's uh, daughters was a, uh, a kindergarten teacher and she from the Fobel um, technique, but she had to go down to the States to be employed. Another one was a dietitian and certified at the University of Toronto. And she too had to go to the States to be employed. And of course, <clears throat> none of them could be employed if they were married. So they generally worked for about 10 years before they, they were married. I particularly like your highlighting of this idea of telling the stories of these people. And, you know, I have, I have three children at home who are six, four, and two, and, you know, they need picture books and children's books that mm -hmm. speak to them about these types of stories that, that really uh, don't get highlighted, don't get told. Dr. McAllister, what, uh, you, you did sort of, I think, mention some of your thoughts, but what, is, is there one takeaway um, that you have from, from doing all this work that you want our listeners to know? quickest or uh, simplest thing I message that I are the, the, I think the deepest message I got from it that this is a shared history this isn't for Black History Month uh, I think that's very important Shannon because we're trying to uh, promote things that we have forgotten but this is actually a collective history uh, uh, these uh, stories are shared by us all and we're all enriched uh, by by knowing them and we're we are certainly impoverished by ignoring them. I like the word impoverished. We really are impoverished by uh, by by not highlighting these stories. Dr. Nakayama, I'll leave the the final word to you. And again, kudos for for organizing all this and and writing this this book and and spearheading this effort. What's one big takeaway uh, that you have from doing all this work? And I know that's a that's a big ask for you. And where do you see you know, especially in our turmoil and, and the political climate that we find ourselves in today is there a way forward that you feel that you can see from having done this work um, as to maybe how we can heal the divides within our fractured nations it's not simple <laughs> but let me let me give it a try i think one of the things that we wrestle with is health disparities right there's differential outcomes for longevity for access to care for outcomes for various diseases. There's just a plain difference, okay? And that's the legacy of 400 years. That's, that's, that's plain and simple. What, what is, what is it's, it's part of the reality of the United States and it's part of the reality of, of, of healthcare everywhere. So what do you do about it? Well, one of the things that's most nagging is the fact that we can't get much more above six or 7% of African-Americans in, uh, in, in, in medical schools. You know, the, the affirmative action, the, the civil rights legislation in 1964 and 1965 was supposed to have solved all that. But one of the realities of medical school admissions is that there's a ceiling. And it's not an intentional ceiling, it's just a ceiling. I and mean, things don't get above six or 7%. So what do you do about it? One of the things that has always been part of the solutions is the pipeline, right? Is just training 
it's not just getting undergraduates, uh, black undergraduates to be interested in medical school. It's something that has to start from way back. It's got to start from the very start. And that's the lesson of history. And that's the lesson of the Buxton School in that you take black children and you give them education and you give them the same education that one would have anywhere. And you give them a classical education. It's not it's not anything special. It's the same stuff that have that comes from from millennia. And this is how we train children to become citizens and adults. And you put them in there, and lo and behold, the first class of the Buxton School, six black men, four of them turned out to be physicians, and three of them served in the Union Army as surgeons. And that's the lesson that, you know, they say that if you forget history, you're doomed to repeat it. Well, it may, that may not be so, but it certainly rhymes, okay? And that shows the power of the pipeline in that something, a vision by Reverend William King of starting the school and just, just, just believing in it really made a difference. And that's the, that's the story of, of the Buxton School. That's the story of Black uh, 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 black surgeons and surgery in america and we have to take that forward it's something that uh, you know education is a great level right it's a great opportunity and that's what we uh we have to relearn every every generation or so but this is a way out you've been listening to cold steel the official podcast of the canadian journal of surgery if you like what you've heard please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Thanks again.